Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 7 Paul a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome beloved of God called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and sure the Lord God is blessing uh, to that wonderful uh, passage of scripture that we've been looking at over these last uh, ten weeks or so you know we are in no doubt tonight concerning Paul's credentials what authority has Paul to go to Rome what authority has he got to interfere in the affairs of this Roman church what authority has he got to, to write such an amazing epistle? And uh, what is the equipment that he has to do so? And um, we've seen that spelled out in no uncertain terms that we discovered over these last five or six Thursday nights together. His credentials are impeccable. His authority is of the highest order. And there is no doubt that he is the man to write this epistle and he is the man to interfere in the affairs of a church that exists hundreds of miles from him people that he never met before and yet they needed to hear from this man because he spoke for God you know and now as we, as we move on in the, the passage it is to the recipients of this amazing letter that we must turn our thoughts to now I've said over the last couple of weeks that the epistle of Romans is a definitive or definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spelling out for us the tyranny of sin, the consequence of sin, and the antidote of sin. It's a wonderful book that tells us what God has done for us and the plans that he had made. Now you would be thinking, forgiven for thinking, that if this book is the gospel uh, in a nutshell, that it would be addressed to those who are outside the kingdom of God. You would think that this is God's plea to the world. That this is God's professing of the gospel to men and women who are still in their sins, who have yet to come to faith, who are still lost and in the dark. But that, nothing could be further from the truth than that. In fact, as you read this introduction to the letter to Romans, it becomes glaringly obvious that this epistle, far from being written to the sinner and to the unbeliever and to the one who is lost in their sins, is actually written to those who have already come into a living relationship with God through Christ. It's for us. You and me. It's not for the world. 
It is for those who already believe, who are already walking in the faith. Let's just listen to a description of them, of these people who are to receive this letter. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that to me is a, de- is a description of the believer, of the one who has come into relationship with God through Christ, of the one who's, uh, who, upon whom God has actually set his love. And here is Paul writing such an epistle to those who already believe. You know, I think that in our day, which is supposed to be defined as secularistic, is that is that I don't know if that's the right word. It's it's defined as uh, or by its secularism. Then that would be a better. uh, I'd be more comfortable with that. Do you know that this world has become more religious than it has ever been before? It brags about its materialism and its secularism and all the things that um, militate against God and against religion. And yet at the same time, it is becoming more religious than ever. There is never a day that goes by when religion isn't the top of the news. Or at least a part of some serious point of debate or another. Unfortunately, of course, it is mentioned in relation to Islam. You want the terror that Islam, uh, or the terror that is being perpetrated by Islam. You want seeing uh, the media going to great lengths. I don't know if you've noticed, but they go to great lengths, and our politicians go to great lengths to try to disassociate radical extreme Islam from the peace-loving Islam that we find in our mosques in Britain. But as I've noticed, especially over this last few months, that it's getting more and more difficult to disassociate the two, to separate the two. This radical Islam, which is uh, causing terror and mayhem and destruction and mutilation in the world, it's very difficult to dissociate ourselves from that with the peace-loving Islam that we see on our streets. It's getting more difficult. But then what about Christianity? How does Christianity fare in relationship with Islam? You know, it could be said that we had a similar problem and perhaps still do in places like Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland was a religious conflict. You know, we can point the finger to Islam and say it's a religious conflict. And yet at the same time, we can point to Northern Ireland and say it's a religious conflict where Catholics and Protestants have been known to indiscriminately blow each other up in the name of their brand of Christianity. Notice it was never in the name of Jesus. It was in the name of Catholicism or Protestantism. It was in the name of their brand 
of Christianity. It's no wonder then that the world considers religion to be its most sinister and dangerous enemy. You and an awful lot of vile things have been said on the television, in conversations round and about. An awful lot of vile things have been said about something that should feel, fill people with love and devotion. Religion. And whether it's Islam or whether it's uh, Christianity, it makes no difference if people are dealing blows against others in the name of the religion, then it brings such a terrible name and reputation to the religion that it represents. And how society would view such a thing, whether it's Islam or whether it's Christianity. No wonder, um, I want us to know tonight, think tonight, is there a true, comprehensive description of Christianity available to us so that we can detach ourselves from the caricature of how Christianity is actually portrayed and viewed by the people today. Is there a definition that would set us apart? Is there a definition that would embrace us as people of God? And of course the answer is obviously yes, or I wouldn't have asked the question as a Bible teacher. The answer is yes, unfortunately for us tonight, the answer is found in our text. I don't know if you noticed that. It's found in, uh, in the form of our text tonight, where we have, and this is the first ever description of Christian people that is found in the Scriptures. You know, a description, of course, that has or must stand the test of time and therefore should stand true today. And therefore we can gauge the authenticity of our Christianity not as we look at what's happening in the world, but as we study God's Word. Do we live up to what Paul describes for us here as a Christian. It should stand the test of time and therefore should be what stands true in our world today. Notice as I read the scripture that the description of a Christian person is void of any provocative language at all. No words like Catholic or Protestant or Presbyterian or Baptist or any such designation whatsoever but the definition that I see in these verses is a comprehensive picture of what we are as Christians and you know this is exactly the whole purpose in Paul writing this epistle you see, as we've gone down through these seven verses that we've looked at so far, we've seen that he's introduced himself very thoroughly. He's given us a synoptic, a great synopsis of the gospel. He's given us his letters of authority, as we saw last week. And he's outlined his mission 
and the extent of its influence. And that's, the, that's where we finished last week. The extents, extent of his influence. All nations. All nations. Let's read that verse again. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. For his name. All nations. You know, and that's where we come in. You and I are a part of that last little little sentence. We are a part of the all nations. Among whom it says, in our text tonight, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is writing to the church at Rome. It's made up of Jews, probably come to faith on the day of Pentecost, when they were visiting to celebrate the Passover, and uh, oh, the, the, the feast of Pentecost only, and received Christ as their saviour and as we know 3,000 people came to know the Lord that day and they were all um, Jews from the uh, the diaspora or the diaspora and then they would have gone back to their places uh, of uh, inhabitant, inhabitants and taken the gospel with them so there we can see that they are Jews, but we also know that they are Gentiles. In that this is a Gentile city, and each convert that would have been brought to faith would have been a Gentile. You know, as we go through the first three chapters of the book of Romans, we can see that it deals with all sides of society. It deals with the Romans, uh, with the Jews, sorry, and it also deals with the Gentiles. You and I, of course, are among the Gentiles. And so we are basically looking at the description of ourselves when we come to this part of the scripture. Do we need a description of ourselves? Don't we know ourselves what we are? Don't we understand what we've become? Do we need to be told exactly what is true of us? You know, I think we do. I think the most important thing that you and I need at this present moment of time is to understand what God has done for us to understand where God has placed us to understand how God thinks of us to understand what God is preparing for us because we so often let that drop when things come our way and cause us to, uh, to sin or cause us to fall or cause us to doubt it's our understanding of what God has done that holds us. You know, when Satan tempts me to deep despair and tells me of the sin within, what do I do? Most of us crumble. Most of us get depressed. Most of us feel guilty and condemned. When that song says, up when I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You know, and we can walk in the fact that God has made an end to all my sin in Christ as he hung upon the cross. Now that's sometimes a revelation to us. You see, that, uh, that's how we should be living. Not up and down, condemned and coming out of conde condemnation, feeling guilty and then not guilty. You see, God has made us with no condemnation right now because we are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you and I, we need to know who we are in Christ. 
We need to have the definition of a Christian. We need to know what is changed and what is true of us in this time, in this day and age. The extent of what Christ has done for us. You see, being a Christian needs such a definition if we are to live the type of life that is actually available to us. I wanted to notice in these few verses, and we're looking at verses 6 and 7. I read them again for us. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now first of all, I want us to notice that Paul gives to us a general statement of who we are. Before he ever mentions the geographical um, location, he talks to us about who we are. Who we are. And then he goes on after that, after he talks about Rome, he goes to a couple of particular things. So we've got a general idea of what a Christian is, and then we've got some particulars that come after. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And that's where we must start. Called of Jesus Christ. Called of Jesus Christ. Now again, for the third week in a row, the NIV brings to us a more workable translation. The NIV says, called to belong to Jesus Christ called to belong it's more workable because essentially it's not Jesus who calls us into the kingdom we know that from the scriptures it's not Jesus who calls us into the kingdom but such a calling in the scriptures is attributed to God the Father you know we can see in in passages like Ephesians chapter 2 where it says but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up together. And He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, we can also see this in John chapter 6, where Jesus Himself tells us that we are actually called by the Father. Listen to what it says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day and then again in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer of Christ Jesus says these words I have revealed your name to the men whom you have have given me out of the world they were yours but you have given them to me and they have kept your word you have said on many occasions uh, before that we are God's gift to his son You and I are God's gift to His Son. And so it follows then that it is God the Father who initiates the call into Christ. That's why I've taken the NIV uh, rather than the New King James Version because it implies that. The the New King James Version may imply that it is Christ who called us. But no, it's God who calls us. God who calls us through Uh, Christ. Now I don't suppose that 
That's too important. You know, we're not going to get hung up about who it is that calls us. You know, as long as someone calls us uh, into the kingdom, that's the most important thing. So we're not going to be too hung up about that. But it is imperative that we know that we have been called into Christ. I think this is the the greatest um, truth that God has ever given to us. That we have been called into Christ. And that we now belong to Him. I was speaking here on Sunday morning and I used the word being possessed by God. And it made people sit up and question Are we possessed by God? We were dealing with Abraham and and the way that God almost ran roughshod over his desires and implanted his own on him. You will be the father of nations. I will bless the world through you. You know, it seemed that Abraham had no choice in the matter at all. Does God own us? Does he possess us? You know, and the thing that we have uh, in this passage of Scripture is that he tells us that we belong to him. We are now his own possession. His glorious own possession. Now that we have been placed in him. In him. Being called into Christ. And that ushers us uh, into one of the greatest things that we need to know. And that is a Christian is one who is in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. I don't know if you can remember, but I did spend a whole five weeks starting from scratch course a number of years ago. Remember that, Rob? Oh, I love the hours. That, what? (laughs) Any great hours. Right, Rob? We spent a whole five weeks upstairs, I think it was upstairs, yes. looking at what it meant to be in Christ Jesus and um, just to put it very sort of clearly we inhabit the same realm as he does being seated in heavenly places with him we are separate from everyone else since we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God we come under a different headship being members of his kingdom we have different priorities being members of his body and we are not dominated anymore by sin and its consequences for he who has died has been freed from sin that's an amazing place to be in and I thoroughly enjoyed, as Robert just told us, thoroughly enjoyed uh, what we talked about upstairs for those five weeks. Now then, in the context of today's world, this world where religion is fighting for domination, fighting to subdue the other, this general description of the Christian is quite silent on certain things it's silent on domination there is nothing at all about domination there's nothing at all about ruling the world there's nothing at all about 
physically subduing your enemies. It's got nothing at all to do with that at all. It has no um, influence on political power. No, Jesus never ever influenced the political power of his day. The Roman army were, were an invading army. They had occupied Israel and they didn't belong there. They were subduing the children of God and had done some atrocious things to them and would continue to do so in the years to come. Even worse things that they'd done before. But Jesus never ever spoke against the Roman occupation. And if he was to go all the way to Peter, neither did Peter speak against the Roman occupation. Because as Christians, that is not the domain that we work in. That is not why we are here. We are not here to dominate the world. We are not here to take over political power. It says nothing about forcing people to join the kingdom. Nothing at all. There is no violence. The only violence is that we grasp hold of the things of God. That's the only violence that is, that is there. That we violently take hold of the kingdom of God. And let no one rip us from it. But as far as forcing people. As far as dominating people. As far as taking political control of anything. It is not you at all. Because it's the father who calls people. I've just said. It's not me who calls people. God has called me to preach the gospel. He's called you to be a witness. He hasn't called you to call people into the kingdom. He does that himself. All he wants from you is the voice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All he wants from you is a, a, a lifestyle that will enhance his reputation. All he wants from you is that you do things that will bring glory to him. That's how he works. You know, we'll be tied to any of us who think that we can just ride roughshod over the community that we belong to because we are Christians and we're in the army of the Lord. Now I know there are some Christians who think that. And over the years, many terrible things have been done in the name of Christianity because we've got a skewed idea of what it's all about. But when you read Romans chapter 1, you'll find nothing of domination of political power or of forcing anybody to do anything so in a general description of the true Christian Paul tells us simply that it is those who are in Christ Jesus now then that's the general look at what we are but what about the particulars what about the particulars well let's look at the verse again Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it really goes without saying that Paul isn't writing this letter to everybody who happens to be living in Rome at this time. He's, he's writing to a special group of people a special group of people who from Rome God has delivered out of Rome Paul says it in another pas passage he says delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom 
of the son of his love. That's who he's writing to. And that's a description of us. A particular description of us. Delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now these special people, and we can count ourselves uh, as being among them, are in the words of our text, beloved of God and called to be saints. Beloved of God. You know what I think that the order that Paul writes is quite perfect. In fact, it's important that he, he wrote it in this order and it's important that we understand it in this order. So we're going to look at uh, those three things or those two things in order. One of them we're going to look at this week and the other one we can look at next week. Beloved of God. That's why we sang, overwhelmed by love. Because you and I are beloved of God. You know what, it's quite significant that right in the middle of this description of true Christianity, Paul mentions the city of Rome. Now, Rome, as we know, was the heartbeat of the empire. It was a savage empire. Of course, Rome brought us many great things. Civilization, Rome, and all the rest of it. Rome was great in some respects, but Rome was very savage in other respects, especially the city of Rome, the metropolis of the Roman domain. Because it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think of the type of life that the majority of its inhabitants were living. You know, films today and books on history have time and time again remarked on the sordid, the immoral and the debauched lifestyle of this dominant force. And yet, within its walls, walking its streets, meeting in its homes, there were little groups of people who stood out, who were different, whose lifestyle betrayed their dissimilarity to the society that surrounded them. What was it that was so different with these people? And how did they become so different? You know, it simply, or was it simply because they were better than anyone else? Have these groups of people been brought up to be different? You know, you've got the moral, uh, the moral high ground, as people call it. You know, and my child wouldn't do this, and my child is going to sort of grow up and be this. You know, and there are groups of people who think that they can buck the trend of society and move in a different direction. Is that why there were groups of people that were different to the debauched lifestyle that was around them? Was it because they were good at heart? Was it because they had received education? Was it because they had, had a little bit of luck and their lifestyles was brought up a little away from the working class into the middle class so they could be better and be better citizens and that society could sort of grow with them? Was all these things a factor in this little group of people who were different? 
But Paul says, no, that's got nothing at all to do with it. Nothing whatsoever. He only gives one reason for this difference. One reason. And that is the love of God. The love of God. You see, the love of God had made such an impact on their lives that they became different in their attitudes, in their lifestyles, in their desires, in their hopes, in their dreams. Everything about them is different because of the impact that the love of God had had upon them. You know, we could go back to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul actually spells out for us the Roman lifestyle in no uncertain terms. He says this, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That was the Roman society. In fact, it was the Ephesian society. It was the Colossian society. It's the society that we see in Israel, in Tonreva, in Clearville, Tonopandi. That's the society that we belong to. That's the society that these special people belong to. That's where they are to live. That's where they are to grow. That's where they are to learn. That's where they are to earn their living. They are to do all those things in that society. And so do we. We have to live and work and have our being in the same type of society as this Roman society. Because nothing has changed. Sin is still rampant and dominant. And the lusts of the flesh are still being gratified on a massive scale all around us. And God is left out of everything. Everything. And more and more and more is God left out and put on the shelf. And thought of as unnecessary to everything that is being done. No, we know that. We've dealt with that. It makes sickening reading. And yet we as Christians, we have a vantage point. That we can see the manifestations of this in our own society. You see, if I was to speak to people outside, they would think that I was a raving lunatic. Because I've described society like this. But you and I, having been brought out of that society, having been given the gift of God's love into our hearts and understand it, we can see the society that we've been drawn from. Because we've got a vantage point. We know that people are dead in trespasses and sins. We know that people are living as though there were no God at all. And here we are. In the same dead society. And yet you we are alive to God. Why? Because of his love. It can only be down to his love. There is no other reason for our vantage point. For our benefit. It's only the love of God that has made the difference. Because so easily we could still be in the society that we've escaped from. 
We could still be dead in our sins. We could still be those that gratify the, the lusts of the flesh. Still under the wrath of God. Still being dictated to by society, by sin and by Satan. What has made the difference? What has happened that has made you different to them? Us different to them? And this is all that has happened. But God... In his mercy, or is rich in mercy, because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, even when we were in this sin-sick society that we belong to, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do we deserve it? Did we earn it? I tell you this. We are not numbered among the transgressors because of his love. Christ was numbered among the transgressors because of his life. Now you work it out. Because he was numbered among the transgressors. In other words, because he died on the cross between two thieves. You and I are no longer numbered with the transgressors because now we have his righteousness placed upon us why? because he loves us he loved us enough to send his only begotten son into the world for us it's because he has set his love upon us you know we saw with Jacob a few weeks ago in Bible and Biscuits Jacob there's a couple of things that's apparent about him First of all, he was the youngest, which should have made him a quite a non-entity in the things of God. He was twisted by name and by nature and by practice. He was the schemer, he was the crook. You know, and you would have thought that God would have stayed a million miles away from him. But before he was even born, God set his love on him. Before he had done anything. God knew him and God loved him. And we talked that Tuesday night of the unconditional love of God. And I thank God that it's unconditional. Mm. I asked the question, if, we, if I mentioned it last Sunday morning, I asked the question, are we happy with the unconditional love of God? Because wouldn't it be better if he loved us because there was something in us? Because that we were good at heart. Because we looked nice or we said nice things. God says, I'm going to love him because look at his heart. It's glowing with charity and love for others. Wouldn't that be much better for us? Are you happy with the unconditional love of God? You know what the answer is? Because I know who I am. Because I belong to a sin-sick society. Because there is not, no one good, no not one, and none seeks after God. You see, it is the conditional, unconditional love of God that is my only hope of salvation. Because there is nothing I can do to make Him love me. There is nothing I can do to impress Him with my charity and my love and my good works and my good looks. I haven't got any. But God loves me. He set his love upon me. John says, he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder, can you get it? Can you get that? Is that able to sink in to you? Is it able to sink in to me? Can I understand it? You know, I've got to be honest, I'm struggling. In fact, I'm failing to take it all in because it's incredible. It's unbelievable. But we as Christians tonight, for one reason only, God has set his love upon us. Do you know, I think that this is the lesson that we must learn and learn it well understand it as best we can but we don't need it because God loves us because God has set his love upon us you know when you think about Romans you know I don't know about you but when I decided or when I thought about doing Romans on a Thursday night you know my my thoughts went to the end of chapter 3 where there was all about the propitiation of Christ for our sin chapter 5 where it was talked about the, um, the, the being justified by faith having peace with God standing in grace how the original sin that came from Adam has been replaced by uh, the spirit of righteousness that has been given to us in Christ how when we went into chapter 6 we will be victorious over sin when we go into chapter 7 we will be victorious over the law when we go into chapter 8, we'll find there's no condemnation and there's nothing that can separate us. You know, and they're the things that sort of spark me and think, ooh, and I wish wait to get, I can't wait to get to them places. But you see, nothing would matter in any of those things if we don't tonight understand that we're only here because God loves us. Because God has set his love upon us. You know, we can scarcely love ourselves sometimes. You know, there are people who have problems loving themselves. You know, and it's a big problem in Christianity that people think, how can God love me? I can't even love myself. Many people think, how can God forgive me? I can't even forgive myself. You know, and going into chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 will be of no value to us if we don't get this simple truth, simple Simple truth, unbelievable truth, incredible truth into us that God loves us. It's the most important thing for us to understand. But God loves us because He loves the unlovely, He loves the unlovable. You know, and it's mind blowing in the extreme. But nevertheless, says Paul, we are the beloved of God, the beloved of God so the epistle to the Romans getting back to our text as we come to a close it's written to a very special type of person a person who has responded to the gospel a person whom God himself has called into the kingdom of his dear son a person who has who he has placed in Christ which gives him a vital union with Christ. So whatever becomes of Christ becomes of us. Wherever He is, we are. We are. 
However, he is thought of, we are thought of. His destiny is our destiny. And that's incredible. That's incredible. How can these things be? Well, firstly, as we looked at tonight, it's simply and solely because of God's love. Set upon us unconditionally, unmerited, definitely unearned, and thankfully unending. I don't know about you, but I'm going to love this book of Romans. And it's good to see uh, a number of people here tonight sitting, listening to the book of Romans. Because I'm going to love it. Perhaps not every second of it. Perhaps there will be things that will challenge me. But when I think that this is all because of his love for me, then even the challenges will be met by grace and by peace. That's why he goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, next week we look at the other particulars that Paul lists in verse 7 that will mark us off even as even more special if ever that could be possible. But just for tonight, to realize that God has called you into his kingdom. And God has set his love upon you. I think it's enough to last us till Sunday. Perhaps till next Thursday. You know when I'm on the beach <coughs> Monday night, freezing cold, looking at a rod that's stiff as a board. I'd be able to think, well God loves me anyway. I'm a beloved of God. If I could get out with the Martha, we might get off the beach a little bit earlier than we normally do. But I thank God that this love not just lasts till Friday, it lasts for eternity. I am eternally secure in the love that God <coughs> has set upon me. Because if He loved me before I knew Him, He loved me when He knew me, how much more He's going to love me from now on. I am a child now that I am a child of it. So I pray the Lord will bless us as we continue to look at these amazing, amazing truths that Paul brings to us.